Welcome to Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel. Israel has brought together millions of Jews from across the diaspora in the world's most chaotic family reunion. This podcast is about what that really looks like. Though this series is fictional, each person is based on real stories shared with us by real people. For millennia, Jews have dreamed of returning to Israel. In last week's episode, we learned about how that dream manifested in 19th century Russia. And this week, you'll hear how that dream is both different and simultaneously completely the same for the modern Jews of France. Ortal Levy rarely missed Paris. Of course, she missed her family. Of course, she kept an eye on French news so she could debate it with her brothers. And of course, there was no substitute for French butter or cheese. But these were small things in exchange for life in Israel, in exchange for the dazzling manic crush of the holidays, the Chagim, every autumn, the way strangers would do anything to help you, even as they asked nosy questions and cut you in line, the way that everyone felt like your family, your loud, chaotic, rude, invasive, loving family. This was home. How could she convey this to someone who hadn't felt it yet? How could she describe that feeling of rightness, of being exactly where she belonged? She tries to find the words, but Emily beats her to it. It sounds like you grew up really connected to Israel. Ortal nods. It's like I said before, French Jews, we feel it here. All of it. Judaism, Israel, Zionism. She touches her chest right above her heart. Does everyone in France feel that way? I can't speak for every French Jew, just like you can't speak for every American. And besides, I feel that I must correct you. I am a French Jew, yes, but even more so than that, my family is Tunisian. Many of us French Jews are Mizrahi, with families originally from Tunisia or Morocco or Algeria. And I can say that in our community in Paris, yes, most of us do have this connection with Israel, with Judaism. We grow up with a very strong identity. Why do you think that is? Religious Jews in Paris, many of us, we grow up in like a bubble. We go to Jewish schools, we have only Jewish friends. I lived near many cousins and all my grandparents, so it keeps reinforcing itself. All of your values, I didn't know anything else. Hmm, it sounds like you grew up pretty insular. Yes, I suppose. It's a way to protect your identity, at least while you are young. After high school, you can go to university and meet new people and do what you like. But by then, your identity is strong. I was very lucky. I grew up knowing who I was, knowing my roots. It started with my mommy, Giselle. She was the storyteller in my life. Ortal would never say it out loud, but Mommy Giselle was undoubtedly her favorite grandparent. All four of her grandparents were wonderful. She loved them deeply, knew she was extremely lucky to have them. But only Ortal's mother's mother, Mommy Giselle, told stories. Not stories from books, but stories from her head, from her past. Without ever seeing a photograph, Ortal could picture Mommy's parents, Mordechai and Sarah, down to the tiniest wrinkle, 
could imagine the house in Jerba, Tunisia, and the seven unruly children who spilled out of it, shouting and playing in the courtyard until arrière-grandmère Sarah threatened to give them away to the neighbors. Mommy Giselle just had that gift. Artal loved hearing all of the stories. One of her favorites was about the bakery. She was fascinated by the communal oven, its flames banked so women could warm their challah or tefina all Shabbat long. Did they really all bake together? Ortal would ask. They put all their food in the same place? And no one took anyone else's pot by mistake? Mommy would always respond the same way. My maman made the best food in all of Jerba. Her friend's husbands would joke that their wives should take her pots by accident, but I don't think anyone would dare. But Ortal's favorite stories were about the famous Lagriba synagogue. They all started the same way. A long, long time ago, there lived an old Jewish woman in Jerba. It was so long ago that no one even remembers her name. The only thing they remember about her was her big heart, her goodness. Her door was always open. She always had the perfect thing for someone in need. Food if you were hungry, a kind word if you were sad. She was famous across Jerba for her beauty, but it wasn't physical beauty. It was shining from the inside, just like yours. Mommy Giselle tweaked Ortal's nose. But then, tragedy struck. Here, Mommy would make her voice deep and serious. One Lagba Omer, one of the bonfires got out of control. Flames licked up the sides of her home. All her mosaics melted in the heat and her books crumbled into ash. The blaze lit up the entire town. You could see it for miles, like an angry sunset. At first, the townspeople were afraid to go near it. But when they gathered the courage to enter what was left of the house, they saw a miracle. Her body wasn't burned at all, Ortal would shout, because she was too holy to get burned up. Mommy would nod. Exactly. So they built the synagogue near her grave. And they used a stone from the first temple. You know how far they carried that stone? From Jerusalem all the way to Jerba, Ortal would say. And you know how old that stone is now? More than 2,000 years. Exactly. So they built the synagogue on this holy ground, with this ancient stone. And they named it after her. Lagriba, the Extraordinary One. Yes, Ortal loved hearing about Lagriba. And all the other stories about Jirba. Its ancient, lavish beauty. The way women would write their deepest wishes on hard-boiled eggs, tucking them into the crevices of the synagogue's walls near Lagriba's grave. But didn't it smell? Ortal would always ask. I hate the smell of eggs. No, Mommy would laugh. It didn't smell. I told you, the synagogue was like magic, just like the Kotel in Jerusalem, where visitors leave notes and prayers between the stones, but with an egg. Can you imagine putting an egg in the Kotel? And what would you even write on an egg, huh? What wishes? No, don't tell me. These wishes are secret between you and... She'd point to the sky, her meaning clear. For Mommy, God was everywhere. And he was a careful listener, a doting father, deeply involved in all his children's lives. 
He didn't need eggs with wishes on them, or notes. He already knew what was in a person's heart. But Mommy said that writing down prayers was a sacred act, a tiny glimpse at a majesty beyond our comprehension. Mommy, Ortal asked one day, why don't we go visit Jerba? She imagined standing in the synagogue and writing her wish on a hard-boiled egg, opening the curved blue door to the house where her mother had been born. Maybe one day we will, Shiri, her mommy said, when it's a little bit safer. Maman was the one who told Ortal to stop asking about visiting Jerba. I don't want you to upset mommy, she said one day when Ortal was ten. She likes telling stories, and of course she loves spending time with you, but there are certain stories she doesn't tell you, and I don't want you to ask her about them. They make her sad. What kind of stories? Ortal asked. You promise you won't say anything? And that you won't ask Mommy about going to Jerba anymore? I promise, Ortal said gravely. A little thrill went through her. She loved it when Maman treated her like an equal, trusting her with secrets. Maman sighed. You know that it isn't always easy to be Jewish. That sometimes there are attacks on Jewish people. Ortal nodded. She wasn't a fool. She'd heard the adults whispering about things that happened in their community. Maman continued. Well, in Tunisia, things were fine for a long time. Or fine enough. But you know that many countries don't like Israel. Tunisia is one of them. When Israel came to be in... What year? 1948, Ortal said sulkily, wishing Maman would get to the point instead of turning every conversation into a lesson. Correct. When Israel came to be in 1948, many Arab countries were very violent towards their Jews. Mommy was only a year then, so she doesn't remember it. But she was a grown-up, already a Maman, during the Six-Day War in 1967. Many Arabs were not happy about Israel winning the war. And so, some Arab countries punished the Jews that still lived there. But why? Ortal asked. Because they were angry and embarrassed and full of hatred. And because they wanted to prove they still had power. So they would take it out on their Jews, set off bombs, burn synagogues, beat people up. Maman's voice was thick with disgust. It came to Tunisia too, Amon continued. There weren't so many Jews left in Tunisia by then, and even still, there was a riot. They burned synagogues, they destroyed property, they even killed people. They burned Lagriba? Ortal asked. She felt as though she'd been punched in the stomach. Maman shook her head. Not Lagriba. The synagogues in Tunis, in the capital. Oh... Ortal said. Oh, good. I, I mean, not good, but I'm glad it wasn't Mommy's synagogue. Me too, Maman said. But you have to understand, this is what Mommy experienced in Tunisia. And you too, Maman? Ortal asked. Maman shook her head. I was a very tiny baby. I don't remember anything. But I think it was also for me that my parents left. For me and for your aunts and uncles. They had felt safe in Jerba, but the rest of the country was punishing its Jews. They felt the violence would come to them sooner or later. It was only a matter of time. 
and they didn't want us to hear our neighbors shouting, kill the Jews. They wanted to leave with good memories, not sad ones. Mommy always made it sound so good, Ortal said. So happy, so peaceful. Maman shook her head. I think at times it was, at least in Jerba. Maybe not in Tunis. But there is a reason that she and Poppy don't go back to visit. There have been some attacks on Jews, even in Jerba. There was one when you were six, just a few years ago. Some terrorist group blew up a truck in front of a synagogue. Were people killed while they were praying? Ortal asked, horrified. I don't know. I think the people killed in the attack were tourists. I don't even know if they were Jews, but it doesn't matter. They targeted the synagogue because they wanted to hurt us. But you know what, Sherry? What? They can't. And you know why? Ortal shook her head. Because it's here. Ortal's maman patted her chest. Jirba, Lagriba, all of it. It's in your heart. And no one can take that away from you. Even if you never see it in your life. But it's still there, Lagriba? People can still go there? They didn't destroy it? It's still there, Mamal said. But I told you, the most important thing is that it's here. She touched her heart again. After that, Ortal stopped asking Mommy when they would go visit Jerba. And she started listening instead for the gaps in her stories. The moments of silence where sadness lurked. It sounds like you and your grandmother were really close. We are still close. She's still alive. Have you ever talked about why she left Jerba? No, never. When I was little, I think she wanted me to focus on the good things, to feel proud of being Jewish, not afraid of it. So she turned Jerba into a fairy tale, so I would feel lucky, so I would feel magic. For us to be Jewish, it isn't about suffering. It's about joy, happiness. We are Jews despite the suffering, not because of it. But isn't some element of being Jewish also like, I don't know, shared trauma? This is only a small part of it. I feel we are bonded by a shared story, a shared past. That's why this country exists. This is why all of us are here sharing this moment after 2,000 years. It isn't trauma that bonds us. Open any history book or the Torah. It's all right there. Ortal loved Passover. Well, not the cleaning. Maman started preparing right after Purim, assigning each child some awful task like organizing the bookshelves or vacuuming the closets. But once the house was spotless, the Passover dishes hauled out and scrubbed, the lemons juiced and the egg whites whipped and the meat roasting in a newly gleaming oven, that's when it felt like Passover. She loved the pageantry of the Seder, the way her father would wink at her as he slid the afikoman under the tablecloth, the same place every year the way Papi Yosef would assemble little sandwiches of matzah and haroset and maror, always giving his grandchildren extra haroset. The way her father hoisted the silver seder plate above each person's head, bopping her brothers gently with it as the whole family sang Bivhilu, in haste we left Egypt, with our bread of poverty. 
Now we are free. But it wasn't until she was 15 that she really understood Passover. That year, Madame Bloch gave her class a special assignment. The Haggadah instructed that each person was obligated to imagine himself as someone who had actually left Egypt during the Exodus. Think about what this means, Madame Bloch said, looking around the room. The Haggadah is asking us to show empathy, to truly feel leaving Mitzrayim, Egypt, to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who had gone from slavery to freedom, from darkness to light. Now here is your assignment, Madame Bloch said. What does that mean, to have escaped from Egypt? You can answer this however you want and in whatever format. You can do a written report, an art project, a creative writing assignment, a movie, an audio presentation, whatever it is, you have to be able to present it in class. Any questions? Ortal was consumed by this assignment, and not just because it counted for 15% of her grade. She turned the question over in her mind. What does it mean to go from slavery to freedom? She'd never known slavery. She'd never even really known hardship. Never been oppressed for her religion or her skin color or her accent. Never been forced to renounce her faith on pain of death. True, the boys she knew removed their kipot or put on baseball caps as they exited school grounds. And she knew some girls who tucked in necklaces with Hamsot or the Magen David. Married women who chose to cover their hair with expensive wigs rather than winding scarves around their heads. Wigs weren't obvious to outsiders. But these things were just a fact of life. This wasn't oppressive. It was just the way things were. She talked over the assignment with Mummy Giselle. Some of the other kids have such creative ideas, she told her grandmother. They're putting together a fake news report with interviews of people who left Egypt. My friend Yael is doing an abstract painting. But I don't know what to do. Mummy Giselle looked at her. Hmm, she said. I wonder, can you tell me what my house in Jirba looked like? Why is this relevant? Ortal asked. Just answer the question. What did the house look like? Ortal sighed. The one you were born in or the one you lived in after you got married? Either one. The one you were born in was big. It had a courtyard where you would play with your brothers and sisters, where one time your sister Yvette snuck in a chicken to keep it as a pet, not realizing that boy chickens make a lot of noise and also don't lay eggs. There were blue and white mosaics along the walls in the dining room, where there was a table that could seat 12 people, and... Ortal trailed off, noticing that Mommy was smiling at her. What? she asked, a bit annoyed. You've never been there, Mommy said. You weren't even alive. And yet, you know how to describe these things. Do you understand what I am telling you? Yes, but you told me about all these details. I have a source. Mommy raised her eyebrows. Yes, and what is the Torah? A storybook? But the Torah doesn't have all the details. It doesn't say what the houses looked like, or what the Pharaoh wore, or what people ate for breakfast. But history tells us, Mommy said. The Torah tells us the big story. And history and archaeology, they fill in the blanks, the details. And anything you don't know, you can imagine, yes? Ortal frowned. I guess, she said. She looked up at Mommy. 
Will you read it when I'm done? Mommy enfolded her in a hug. Of course, ma chérie. It would be my honor. So, Ortal threw herself into imagining what the exodus felt like. Not for Moses or for Aaron, who stood before Pharaoh and made demands. Not for Miriam, Moses' sister, leading the women in song as the sea groaned open, revealing their paths towards freedom. She wasn't a leader or a prophet. She wasn't brave enough to defy a king or confident enough to rouse a group of women into song. So she imagined someone more relatable. Someone small, unimportant, unnamed. A girl just like her, who had lived her whole life as a slave. Who woke up before dawn to bake bread and then made her way to the fields where she worked in the punishing desert sun. Whose dreams were small, a moment of respite to cool her feet in the banks of the Nile. A day without the bite of the overseer's whip. And then, Ortal imagined what it might be like to be this girl on the day that the prophet arrived from the desert, sand in his beard and eyelashes. What it would have been like to hear him stutter out a message that rearranged the entire world. Redemption is coming. What would redemption mean to this girl? What would it feel like to have her whole world expand? To look at the Nile and see not a graveyard, but a source of life. To walk in the world with her head held high, free, and unafraid. What would it feel like for this humble, unnamed slave girl to watch as the natural order crumbles? To see rivers turn to blood? To see lice and locusts swarm the palaces and pleasure cities leaving the Egyptians itchy and miserable. What would it be like to watch darkness settle over the Egyptian towns? And what would it be like for her to hear her master's claw at the darkness, howling prayers to gods who weren't there? What would it be like to hear the screams taper off as the days ticked by and they slid slowly into madness? Would she smile with satisfaction as she heard her oppressors suffer? Or would she pity them? Ortal knew that she had lived a life well insulated from suffering. Her tragedies were mundane, a fight with a friend, an ailing grandparent. But she also knew that her community has brushed up against the gruesome, the hateful. She knew that there was hatred bubbling around her, hatred that could spill from its confines in brutal waves. When she was 10 years old, a gang called the Barbarians kidnapped a young Jewish man, Ilan Halimi. The gang was certain that all Jews were rich enough to pay the fabulous ransom they demanded. But when his family couldn't pay, the captors turned cruel. They tortured Ilan to death. No one told her the details when she was a child, but now she's 15. She knows what they did to him knows that he was not their first target, knows that at least 30 people knew about the man in the basement, heard his screams, and did nothing because he was a Jew. Did a barbarian deserve empathy? The Egyptians stood by and watched as the Nile swallowed Jewish baby boys. They watched overseers strike down old men for not working hard enough. They saw Jewish children hauling bricks over bony shoulders and turned away calling to their servants for more wine. No, Ortal decided. Her unnamed slave girl wouldn't feel bad for the Egyptians. 
she'd say, let the darkness take them. Let them go mad in it. And then Ortal imagined the moment that this unnamed girl heard the cry. We're going, now! And how she'd scooped up her bread, still flat, not yet risen, and run to the edge of the desert, where the vast, glittering sea taunted them all. How she'd gasp as one of the men, Nachshon, son of Aminadav, waded right in, certain that the god who called down fire to free his people would not let them down. And how she'd watch, eyes growing wide, as the sea parted, walls of water to her left and right. She'd make her way along the seafloor, afraid that at any moment the waters would collapse back in on them all. And finally, she'd stumble onto the other side and turn to watch the sea return to itself, placid and unknowable. Would this be the moment that she would truly understand that she was free? Or would she be too traumatized to understand that her nightmare was over? That her only job now was to believe that God would provide? Ortal left the ending ambiguous. This was the limit of her imagination. There were people who emerged from traumatic experiences scarred but whole, and there were people who never emerged at all. She had no idea which one she would be, and she hoped she would never find out. When Ortal read the piece to Mami Giselle, there were tears in her grandmother's eyes. You've captured it, she said, kissing Ortal's head. This was it exactly. This was the only time Ortal would ever hear her grandmother admit that life in Jerba was not the fairy tale she sometimes made it out to be. And it was the first time that she realized that there are stories within stories and that the epic sweep of history, with its warriors and kings, its exiles and exodus, belongs to us all. You're really a believer. How could I not be? So, do you feel like coming here to Israel was like coming from slavery to freedom? No. Life in France is not slavery. It's a good life. But I did feel that I was coming from exile. Of course, Jews have history in France. We have history all over the world. But our power, it's here, in this land. And I don't just mean military or political power. I mean spiritual power. I feel more connected to God when I'm here. There are scattered nods around the shared taxi. Nahi, Matan, and Shaya look especially fervent. Mm, for me, the power is that my grandparents built this country. It has nothing to do with God. I think, for me, it's because we're all here. Like this big, diverse group of people with a shared history, but vastly different cultures and experiences. God has nothing to do with it in my mind. I think I am a spiritual person, but I also come from a community of very spiritual people. So for me, to have a relationship with God, it's natural. You're lucky. There are people who work so hard to feel even a fraction of the faith that you do. You understand, though, why for me being Jewish is such a source of joy, of pride? Yeah, I get it. I mean, I can't relate. The only time I felt this strongly was reading Holocaust books as a kid. God, those books traumatized me. I know exactly what you mean. 
They all turn to the skinny girl who has just spoken. She can't be older than 15 or 16. There's a book splayed open on her lap, something that looks like a manga, translated into English. She raises a hand in greeting. I'm Eden. Don't say your names. I know who you are. I've been sort of listening. She turns to Emily. I meet so many kids. The only thing they know about being Ethiopian is how we came to Israel. That's it. Oh, your parents had to walk here through the desert. Oh, were they attacked by bandits? Oh, are you afraid to be beat up by police? It's very annoying. They all nod. They define you by your trauma, basically. Or what they think is your trauma. But it's not my trauma. I was born here. Like, I don't spend all my time thinking about being Ethiopian. I don't really think about stuff that happens before I was born. Like how my parents came here. But for other people who don't really know Ethiopians personally, that's their whole story about us. And Jeddah, the airlifts in the 80s and 90s, and discrimination. It's so... She searches for the right word. One-dimensional? Yeah. Like you're a statistic, not a person. Yes, and it, it squeezes all the, the happiness, the pride, the... The good things out of it. I was very lucky. None of this was part of my growing up. Like I said before, the focus in my community was on the good things. How lucky we were to be Jewish. And because most Jews around me were Mizrahi, like me, we had a similar culture. So there was no misunderstanding. I know that even here, in Israel... People make assumptions about Mizrahim. Do people make assumptions about you? Not because of my background, but they make assumptions about why I came here. Like what? Hortal smiles. She turns to Roe. Let's do an experiment, Roe. If I asked you, why do French Jews come here? What would you say? The French Jews who are coming here is because they are running from the anti-Semitism. It's becoming impossible to be a Jew there. Hortal turns back to Emily and smiles. Et voilà, the main assumption people make about me and about French Jews in general. That we come here because of anti-Semitism. But isn't that true? I mean, I've read about it. There's been some serious anti-Semitism there. Like, really gruesome stuff. Of course it's true. Israelis are warned, don't speak Hebrew when you go to France. Don't wear a kippah. Don't show you're Jewish. The anti-Semitism there is... He shakes his head. Ortal narrows her eyes at him. This whole story about France and anti-Semitism, it is nonsense. If you are afraid of anti-Semitism, you move to a different suburb or city. You don't move to Israel. Believe me, the way Israelis talk, they make it sound like every day is a pogrom, that we live our lives in fear. Poor French Jews hiding under our beds from the anti-Semites. But there are attacks on Jews in France. Of course. Like there are everywhere, including here. This is not why we come here. So why do so many of you come here? You said so yourself, no? This is your home. The home of all Jewish people. It's as simple as that. I don't think that's so simple. Uprooting your whole life just for an ideal? That takes dedication. You have to understand, 
This is very common in my community. They want us to make Aliyah. In our last year of high school, we do a trip to Israel and they take us around all of the universities. You know, a way to show us here's where you can study pharmacy or law or engineering or history or whatever. They show us, come get a degree, start your future. So I did it. I came. And not just me. I think there were maybe five, ten other people from my class in high school that came with me. And more came later. Whoa. Yes, and I was young. I was 18. It's not so hard to, what did you say, uproot your life? It was more like I was starting my life. And I knew that I wanted to start it here. Ortal had been to Israel before. Two of her brothers had their bar mitzvahs there. Her uncle got married there, and her parents' friends owned a house in Ashdod, right on the beach, where she and her family would spend two weeks every other summer. But these were tourist experiences. They weren't real life. And her plans for next year, they weren't real life either. She had enrolled in a Jerusalem seminary, a gap year between high school and whatever came next, but seminary wasn't exactly going to prepare her for living independently. Everything would be taken care of for her. The rhythm of her days would be set for her. She'd sleep where she was assigned to sleep, eat what she was served, study what her teachers dictated. That would be okay for a year. But what would come after, when no one was making these decisions for her? When she'd be in a new country by herself, making her own choices. That's what this trip was all about showing her what her future could look like. So, she and her classmates wandered the grounds of the Tel Aviv University campus with its fig and chestnut trees. In the summer, these trees are a vibrant red, their tour guide told them. You have to come back to see it. They are beautiful. They toured the gleaming labs of the Technion of Haifa, the famed engineering school where researchers studied new ways to cleanly graft human skin new technologies to forestall degenerative diseases. They made their way through Hebrew University with its massive libraries and incomparable views. They went to Bar-Ilan and Ben-Gurion and the Azraeli College of Engineering. These schools were a ticket into another life, where foreign students could learn Hebrew well enough to study advanced subjects, to earn a degree that meant something in Israel. This was a place to establish a foundation for the rest of their lives. They met with young French soldiers and girls doing their year of national service, kids barely older than they were, most with a fluent command of Hebrew, most with stories of how glad they were to be there, some with warnings that life in Israel was not like in France. It's an adjustment, they admitted, but it's worth it. By the time the class returned to Paris, Ortal was sold. Well, it's not like we weren't expecting this, her mother sighed, when she told them that she was planning on moving to Israel permanently. Why don't we see where you are in a year, after seminary? You don't have to make any permanent choices, you know. You can take time to decide. I know what I want, Ortal said. The things you want when you're 18 aren't the things you want when you're 30, Maman answered. Just remember that. She'd say this a lot over the next few weeks. But Mommy Giselle thought 18 was plenty old enough to know your own mind. I was married when I was 18, she told Ortal one Shabbat afternoon. Soon after Ortal announced her intention to move to Israel, 
You're young, but you're not a child. Thank you, Ortal said. I wish they'd see that. She nodded toward her parents, sitting on the couch across the room, cracking sunflower seeds. They will, mon chéri. It's not easy to watch your child get older and make their own decisions. Maman looked at her daughter from across the room, clearly eavesdropping. You're going to have to promise to visit at least four times a year, you know. Why don't you come visit me, Ortal asked. Oh yes, Maman said smiling. This is in addition to us coming to visit you. Don't think you can escape us so easily. So that was it? You moved to Israel when you were 18? That's it. It was hard for me, but harder for my parents. It's hard for any parent to let go of their child, but it wasn't unexpected. They sent me to a Zionist high school for a reason. They couldn't be too surprised that the education worked. That's exactly how my parents felt. And Australia's a lot farther away from Israel than France. My parents are significantly less cool than yours. It's not that they are cool, it's that they believe the same as me. So why don't they live here? Mm, moving is harder when you're older. They're in their 50s now. They have careers, friends, their lives. My mother doesn't speak Hebrew at all. And is she really going to learn at her age? This is why I wanted to come when I was young. I knew I wanted to be here. And I knew that the longer I stayed in France, the harder it would be. I just realized, all of you who came here, you did it when you were really young. That must have made it easier. Much easier. If you had to make the choice again, would you still move here? Of course. It's not even a question. You never had a moment of regret? Uh, I'm a human being. Of course I did. I had many very difficult moments when I wondered what I was doing. But this is true of anything in life. All of us have these moments. Again, the entire Sherut nods. Some more fervently than others. Do you wonder if you made the right choice? It's a part of life. But you know what? I choose to let those moments pass. You have to want to be happy here. You can't just come here and think, why isn't this like Paris? I want it to be like Paris. You have to understand that it's different here. And if you don't appreciate it, if you don't look for the good things in it, then you will have a very hard time. So you have to change your approach. Well said. And because this is my feeling, these difficult moments of doubts, they always pass. I always find something that reminds me, ah, this is why I'm here. Like what? Like hearing my daughter speak in Hebrew. You have a daughter? Yes, Ayala. It means Giselle in Hebrew. She's almost two, raising her here, Watching her grow up like this, nothing makes me happier. They respect kids here. They respect families. Even people who work, they make time for their families. And the workplace, they understand this. Well, thanks for telling me about all of this, your experience. It is just my experience, not anyone else's. But I will say, I made Alia along with other students in my class. Now that we're older... I will estimate maybe one-third of my class from high school lives here, so I might have a different story. But all of us, we have something in common that makes us want to come here. And some of us left very comfortable lives to be here. Your school system is clearly doing something right. 
I think so. I think if the goal is to encourage Jewish kids to make Aliyah, to move here, then we can all learn something from the French Jewish schools. But I also understand that it is hard to live here. And you can feel all the love in the world and all the connection and still not be able to make a living or adjust to the culture or have the life you want here. So I also have sympathy. But it's worth it for you. Of course. Every second. Thanks for sharing all this with me. Your faith, your connection. It feels really pure. Hortal blushes. Thank you, Emily. That is... I am very touched by this. I mean it. Emily turns to Eden, who is flipping through her manga. She must notice Emily's eyes on her because she looks up and smiles. I have a feeling I know what's coming. I don't want to disturb your reading. Don't lie. Of course you want to disturb my reading. And I'm fine with that. But I have to warn you, I don't have a very interesting story. I'm 16. I go to school, go to work part-time. I go on the internet. And that's it. That's my life. Oh, I'm sure there's more to it than that. Thank you for listening to Episode 8 of Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel. Homeland is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked-related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked, and write to us at homeland at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was written by Adi Elbaz and produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz as Emily, Joanne Lichtenstein as Ortal, Eric Ransom as Nahi, Cameron Nikad as Roe, Sherry Wishard as Amalia, and Ori Nash as Eden. Audio Magic was produced by Rob Perra, and I'm your narrator, Ellie Schiff. Special thanks to Rafael Feluzavki, Yves Saal Benishu, Moria Berman, David Elbaz, Yossi Elbaz, Eliana Gerfinkel, and Shaked Karabelnikov. This show was made possible by support from the Coombe Family Foundation, the Crane Mailing Foundation, the Adam and Gila Milstein Family Foundation, and the Skolnick Family Charitable Trust. Stay tuned for Episode 9, which tells the story of Eden and her family, who left Ethiopia and started a whole new life 